science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories from scientists who have encountered danger over the course of their work. Back when I first got started at Story Collider about eight years ago, I think I had this idea that scientists are mostly indoor kids and nerds, you know, like me. (laughs) And I mean, in many ways, yes, they definitely are nerds. That much is true. (laughs) But I think most of them are also much more likely to survive in a zombie apocalypse scenario than, say, I am. If you look back at our fear episode from October 26th, I think you can get a pretty good sense of that. So I have a lot of respect for scientists and the danger, both emotional and physical, that they encounter on a regular basis. And our two stories today are a great example of that. So our first story is from Ralph Bouquet. It was recorded in October 2018 at the Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme that night was Unmasked. It's an unusually warm and clear spring day in Cambridge. And I'm a sophomore in college, balancing a burger in one hand and a stack of uh, playing cards in the other. Members of two black Harvard student groups uh, have organized their annual tradition of uh, a spring barbecue um, in the quad, the Harvard quad. It's one of the grassy uh, fields in the north part of the campus. Um, Now, In this scenario, uh, I am the vice president of the Harvard Black Men's Forum, and we're one of the organizers of the event, along with our sister organization, the Association of Black Harvard Women, and we're having a good time. But unbeknownst to us, uh, while we're playing our games of uh, three-legged races, hopscotch, dodgeball, spades, of course, uh, there are a couple emails. There's an email thread happening in one of the neighboring dorms, and Essentially, several white students have begun to ask why a group of non-Harvard people uh, from Dorchester, of course, Boston's, one of Boston's historically black neighborhoods, have decided to invade the Harvard Quad and host their event there. Now, the emails begin to pile up, and eventually somebody decides to call the police. So we're there, and police show up. So... I've had to prepare myself for interactions with the police at several points throughout my life. And every single time, there's a complex mix of emotions that I experience. Uh, The first, most obvious and palpable emotion that I feel is usually fear. Like the fear that I felt when I was 10 years old, watching a police officer interrogate my dad uh, for having an out-of-state license plate. We were on a family road trip driving through Indiana. Officer made my dad step out the car. Occasionally, I also feel this weird mixture of shame and embarrassment. I felt that a few years ago, I was uh, driving home from the movie theaters with my two younger sisters, um, and we got into an accident. This uh, elderly, old white man um, hit us. It was a slow collision. There wasn't that much damage, but he turned, and it was clear he seemed to be a little bit disoriented and confused. The officer who shows up on the scene begins to interrogate me aggressively, uh, even despite the fact that this old man has repeatedly said that it was his fault that he should have been driving at night. Sometimes, occasionally, I feel anger as well. I felt that anger two years ago. I was in New Orleans with a couple of friends. We were at Essence Fest. 
on our way to the concert. And I remember a police officer almost slammed the door of our car on the leg of one of my friends. Apparently, we were getting dropped off in our Uber in one of the spots that wasn't the designated drop-off. And so rather than use his words, the cop decided to push the car door closed as we were attempting to get out. And every single time when these events happen, I'm also cycling through all the speeches and the warnings that most black men at some point in their lives have heard from their parents. And yet, nothing, even after all that, nothing still prepares me for that feeling of seeing two cops on motorcycles park and walk their way towards us, me and my group of friends. So the cops show up, they start asking for some IDs. We show them IDs, we show them our paperwork. Harvard clearly knows we're supposed to be there. Uh, In fact, the Harvard University Dining Services are actually preparing the burgers and the hot dogs that we're eating during the course of the event, in between the three-legged races and the games of spades and dominoes. And they leave, everything's okay. But, you know, we try to get back to our festivities, but it's kind of hard to have fun after something like that happens to you. The mood has totally been soured. Everything has sort of changed. We get back home, uh, back to the dorms, and everybody starts to see those emails. And so we're like, you know what? We got we to gotta motivate. We got we to gotta get together and do something. So we do a demonstration, and we organize the I Am Harvard campaign, which is premise, the premise of this is the radical notion that black students exist at Harvard and deserve to exist there. Yes. But... Even despite that, we do our campaign. We actually set some demands to the university, um, some of which are still in place. We ask for more uh, tutors of color, more facilitated discussions around race and discrimination during the freshman year, uh, more diverse administrative staff. But even after all this, that fear that I feel still stays with me. So in college, I major in psychology, and so that means I'm involved in quite a few research studies. Uh, and in this case, I'm actually working as a confederate in these studies, and not that type of confederate, all right? <laughs> so in psychology, uh, a confederate is a person, usually an actor, who pretends to play the role of a subject in a research study, um, but in actuality, uh, they are actually working alongside the researcher, but the other participants usually don't know that. So. Uh, It's a year later now after this incident on the quad, and the PI, the principal investigator of the lab that I'm working in, uh, approaches me and asks me if I'm interested in a summer job. And she describes what the experiment is. So she's investigating uh, whether increases in cortisol, which is a stress hormone, um, in response to a stressful uh, social interaction affects decision-making, particularly around uh, threat-related decision-making. So I'm like, all right, that sounds pretty cool. That sounds good. Uh, She then lets me know that, in fact, the stressful social situation that she's investigating involves racial bias. I'm like, okay, interesting. And then she reveals to me the population that she's studying, police officers. So I'm like, all right, I don't know about this. Uh, I'm a little interested, but I'm also a little bit anxious because here's an opportunity to do something really cool, to do some really cool research, but by engaging in stressful interactions with group members of an organization that I've spent my entire life trying to avoid as a black man. But, man, money talks. And when you are broke on financial aid in college, sometimes you end up picking up some weird jobs. So, first day of the study, here I am in the Cambridge Police Department, got my suit and tie on, ready to do this study. And in this study, uh, I'm not a Confederate this time, I'm actually an actor in a role play scenario. 
And so I'm engaging with police officers uh, in a role play. They play the role of a sergeant who has to uh, deal with a complaint. And I'm a young lawyer who's coming to the police department to make a complaint about another officer who mistreated me poorly. So let's call this officer Officer Jones. So I walk into the uh, room. And there's always a police officer there hooked up to an EKG and several other physiological monitors. In addition to cortisol, which is taken by a saliva sample, uh, we're also looking at their heart rate. We're measuring their uh, blood pressure as well during this experiment. And so here's the role play scenario. So I walk in and uh, I'm a young lawyer and I describe the scenario and I make my complaint to them. Here's my complaint. Uh, A couple nights ago, I was... uh, Walking uh, from the bar with a couple of friends. We just had a few drinks, good time. Walking down the street, we're making jokes, we're laughing. Somebody decides to call the cops on us, okay? I split off from the group, and then while I'm walking away from the group, uh, the police officer who's called on the scene sees me, approaches me, calls me a drunk son of a bitch, slams me against the car, is really aggressive, verbally, physically aggressive with me, and so that's my complaint. And now usually the police officer there gives me sort of the can department response, right? Uh, oh, you know, sorry about that. We're, we're going to look into this. And I retort, you know what? I mean, what, what y'all looking into? I mean, we have witnesses who saw what happened. Here I am telling you the situation, like, y'all need to do something about this. And so we sort of engage in this back and forth. And this is sort of the key stressful interaction. And then I flip the switch, all right? And so I, I have a script that I'm working off of that I memorize. And here's the key line in the script where things really start to get a little, little testy. So at one point I go, you know what, Sergeant, (laughs) you and I both know this, all right? Officer Jones treated me the way he did because of my race, because I'm black. Whoever called the police, all right, they called the police because they saw a group of black men walking in their neighborhood and they got nervous, okay? But guess what? This is our neighborhood too. We live here too, okay? Now, range of responses happens after I say this line, Uh, ranging from reluctant apologies to open antagonistic sort of responses. And I remember in one particular case, uh, this one officer, after I say that line, he looks at me and he rolls his eyes and he goes, come on. So then I press him. Next line is, Sergeant, do you honestly think he would have treated me this way if I was white? He completely shuts down. He goes, okay, buddy. Shifts back in his seat, completely checks out from the rest of the role play. I'm like, all right, interesting. And it's one of those interesting moments where I sort of realize that in many ways, uh, many police officers are operate under the full impression that the law will always be on their side because they're in a situation where when one of their own does something bad, they get to investigate one of their own. So that study ends and it's now my senior year of college and I'm doing what most college senior do I'm trying to live it up. All right. I got last bit of college freedom and fun left. So I'm at a party. And maybe the party is a little bit loud. The music is a little bit too loud than it should be. Maybe it's a little bit too late. Uh, maybe we're a little bit too close to some other residential housing. And so somebody makes a noise complaint and they call the cops. And this time the situation is a little bit different because I'm in a mixed race group of friends. I got some of my white male friends with me. We're at this party. Now, engaging with the police when you're with your white friends is always a pretty interesting situation. It's... I'm always baffled by the sudden increase in patience and the second chances and the warnings that seem to sort of get conjured out of thin air. And in this scenario, I'm really shocked because I'm listening and these white boys are arguing with the cops. 
They're yelling at them, telling them that they have lawyer dads who will come and do this, who will take their badge numbers. And I'm like, I try to be a rational, reasonable person. I'm like, you know what, guys, we're, we're kind of clearly in the wrong here. It's, it's 2.30 a.m. on a Thursday night. Like, let's just wrap this up, pull the plug, and go inside and play Smash Brothers. Like, what are we doing here? So... I decide to, all right, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to see if I can sort of deal with the situation because I happen to be the most sober person uh, in the building. So I walk outside and I'm like, uh, officers, I'm really, really sorry for this. Uh, I totally, we apologize for this. We'll shut the music down. We'll uh, shut the party down. Uh, we really apologize for causing a disturbance. This won't happen again. Then one of the officers looks at me, pauses for a second, and he goes, hey, Aren't you that asshole from that experiment last summer? In my mind, I'm like, damn. I'm completely shook. And in the back of my mind, I'm running through all these stories of police retaliation that I've heard growing up. And of course, you know, this is before smartphones are ubiquitous, before all the faces and the names of the dead black men and women that you now see on your screens used to only be on t-shirts and murals in the communities where I'm from. And so, I'm speechless. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say next. And then the officer sort of continues talking, and he goes, you know what? This prick almost gave me a fucking heart attack last year. (laughs) The other officers start laughing. I take their cue. I start laughing, too. I'm nervous. I'm, I'm doing nervous laughter. And they start badgering me with questions, asking me, oh, so, you know, how much do you get paid to scare cops, huh? (sighs) And I'm just terrified, but I'm answering their questions. And as we start to talk, I realize, all right, the tension has started to deflate a little bit. Uh, Maybe I might be able to get out of this. This this might be okay. But at the same time, uh, this is one of those moments where I truly begin to realize that this confrontation and the fear that I feel really reveals sort of the freedom and the power that these police officers have to do whatever they want. And so I apologize. I go back inside. My group of friends who are inside are completely stunned at what just happened. Um, But I'm shaken because I don't like these interactions at all. And I wish I could say that after that interaction that my fear of police officers suddenly disappeared But if you've been paying to the news, you've been paying attention to the news, it it really didn't. It never has for me. So I'm inside the house and looking outside the window, making sure to see if they've left. I hear them laughing as they walk back to their squad cars, pull up, and drive off into the night. That is Ralph Bouquet. Ralph is the Education and Outreach Manager for NOVA, the PBS science documentary series produced by WGBH in Boston. At NOVA, Ralph's team supports science educators through the creation of free classroom resources and finds creative ways to engage new audiences for NOVA's broadcast and digital productions through science communication events around the country. Before NOVA, Ralph taught high school biology and chemistry in Philadelphia and then spent some time in ed tech at a Boston-based startup. I don't know about all of you, but personally, I get chills at the end of Ralph's story as he's watching out the window. Damn. I think now is probably a good time to reiterate how grateful we are when folks share these stories with us and that they tell them so well that they literally haunt me for months. Our next story today is from Ali Mustafa. It was recorded in November 2018 at Jack's Urban Meeting Place, or JUMP, in Boise, Idaho, 
is part of our show in partnership with Boise State University's Micron School of Materials Science and Engineering. The theme that night was thermodynamics. I used to work with the U.S. Air Force in Iraq and as a civilian contractor uh, back in 2006 till 2012. I did a lot of data analysis and logistics support for our troops over there. Um, my office was an underground bunker and uh, I spent most of my time facing my laptop and reading emails trying to fix a lot of screw-ups that we did over there. And uh, one day I was running upstairs and uh, holding my super hot microwave lunch, so excited and so determined not to waste any minute of my precious lunchtime. It's my time with the Middle Eastern sun, the sun that will make you 100% sure that the global warming is not a hoax. <laughs> I didn't care how hot and how dusty it was, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed seeing these soldiers struggling with their gears and their armors and uh, um, counting how many Blackhawks landing and taking off. I, I just freaking loved it. And while I was talking to two new officers and I was actually briefing them about their mission in the red zone, the sirens went off. It was so loud and so disturbing. Somebody shouted, incoming. I said, who's coming? One of the soldiers shouted on my face, it's mortars, you moron. Run, run, run. I didn't have time to think. I just run into nowhere because I couldn't hear the explosions. I just felt the buff in my chest and a lot of them. I didn't know where to go or where to hide. So till I saw one of the birds not far away from me, so I throw myself underneath it and um, crawl to the middle, squeeze my, um, hug my legs and squeeze my neck into my body armor, trying to protect myself. But I didn't know the bird is already on fire. It was a direct hit until I start to smell the plastic and uh, the, mel the, the metal was deforming and it's cracking. The heat just start to rise up. I turn my head into the ground and start to dig a hole by using my fingernails. And, but I, I tried to bury my head there, and, but I wasn't fast enough. The heat rate was so fast. So I didn't know what to, what to do. So I unbuckled my, um, my body armor and hold it up and try to protect my head from the dripping melted metal that start to drip as like hot red lava inches away from my head. And suddenly I, I felt like I've been struck by thunder in my hand as one of the drops like hit my hand and burn it. I've been trained to control pain mentally and not to show any emotions. I was like blank. But I know that's it. This is it. This is the end and I'm done. So I told my shahada or my prayers and 
try to escape away from the moment and I start to think about my um, my lunch and how the bugs and the explosions is gonna ruin it for me now. And and then uh, everything went blurry and I stopped feeling my the pain on my hand and I actually I don't I don't remember when the the medics pulled me out and but I surely remember like when I looked up and I tried to see the sun, but it was so dark because of the smoke coming out from the helicopter. And I tried to answer all the silly questions that the medics tried to ask me, like, what's your name and what day we're on? And there was one dude, he would start poking me with needles and everywhere in my body and asking me if I feel them. I was like, what the fuck, dude? Like, just stop hurting me. Uh, he just pissed me off, and <laughs> yeah, and uh, I didn't feel happy when they pulled me out. I, I felt my life is going down the hill. Um, I don't know if they pulled me out or I'm still there. I didn't feel it. I couldn't see my son for two years after that. I tried to quit my job and become a civilian again. I moved to the U.S. and tried to get away from Baghdad madness and escape to a city where there is no sirens and there is no incomings. But the dark smoke followed me to Boise. I was stuck in low-paid jobs and no employer will accept my degree in chemical engineering. And there's no fun, no life. Like, go to work, go to bed, that's it. But deep down, I know I can make the future. I'm, I'm a fighter. It's a war, and I have to win it. This, this is nothing for me. For God's sake, like, I, I survived the mini holocaust by only a small scar on my hand. So I decided to go back and do a second degree in engineering at Boise State. And during my second semester, I applied for a job, for a, a a research, a research assistant job uh, with one of the most distinguished professors at BSU. And um, I, I know I'm, I'm not gonna get it. It's far away from me. But anyway, I, I did the interviews, I applied, I did whatever he asked me to do. And I just like, forget about it. It's not gonna happen. I just focus more on my uh, classes. And while I was studying for my midterms at the library, um, I received an email from my PI. He said, you got the job. I was like, no emotions. That's my training. I literally walked down from the library and crossed the street to the church and started jumping like a kid. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I love this job. It's, it opened a lot of doors for me and open the, it's an opportunity for a new life here in Boise. So my PI assigned me for a new experiment where, where we will cast uh, single crystals and uh, I have to melt my alloys and uh, till 1200 centigrade and cast them into a mold. And the first time I did the experiment, I was watching, I, would, I turned on the furnace and I've seen the material getting hotter and hotter and it turns into bright yellow, 
thick liquid dripping into a mold. I flash back, hit my brain when I remember that like, the melting metal of the helicopter dripping inches away from my head and suddenly the scar on my hand start to hurt me again. I panicked, I, I freaked out. I turned off the furnace and stepped back. I, I didn't know what to do. But I have to do it. I have to prove myself. I'm not a quitter. This is my life now. I've survived everything. I survived car bombs. I survived mortars. I, ha I survived hostile environment, discrimination, language barriers. You name it, I survived it. So why should I stop? I kept doing it. Next day, I went back and tried again and tried harder. But it's, it's not happening. We're not getting what we are supposed to get. The science, the math is saying we have to get it. But it's not, it's not doing. So I went back and I talked to, I asked my professors very stupid questions and I didn't care. And I flipped every stone and I just tried and tried and tried. Two months later, my PK uh, is my research teammate and I were doing an X-ray imaging for one of the latest in guts that we got and boom, we got something. I, my eyes froze on the monitor. I couldn't, I couldn't talk. I turned to BK and told him, dude, we got it. <laughs> I went back and I started to take my lunch um, outside my lab near the engineering building. And the dark smoke is getting fade. It's fading. And soon I'm going to see my son again. Thank you, guys. That was Ali Mustafa. Ali is an undergrad student at Boise State University's Material Science and Engineering program, working toward his second degree. His first bachelor degree in chemical engineering was from a technological university in Baghdad. As we heard, last year he joined the Magnetic Shape Memory Alloys Research Team at Boise State University and was assigned to the Crystal Growth Research Team. He is also a volunteer at the Community Trust Partnership Program with Boise Police Department. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. Stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Katie Wu, Ari Daniel, Liz Neely, and myself, Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Oberon and Jump for hosting these shows and to Ali, Eric Jankowski, and all the folks at Boise State for making my trip out there worthwhile despite the fact that I was literally bleeding out my ears. <laughs> thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.